Amen. Wow. You guys make it easy to preach here. It's like, <laughs> we just go. The love. I was just thinking as we were worshiping, just, God's just reminding of, us of his love this morning. The cross, the, the love of Christ, it's just so evident here. And, man, when the people of God gather, it's, it's a beautiful thing. This is exciting. I have a lot of pages of notes because I don't preach very often, so I get a little extra time to prepare, so prepare yourselves. <laughs> I'll talk fast. Um, this summer we've been reading through the book of Matthew, uh, his gospel exploring the theme of restoration. Restoration. Last week, Pastor Jalisa unpacked Matthew 16, where we were introduced to this idea of leaven or yeast, which is an ingredient in bread that makes it rise and fluffy. And uh, the Bible uses this analogy to describe religiosity of the Pharisees. It rises up in them, and it's not so good. Uh, It also is used in the Bible to describe sin, and sin rises up in us and creates something that's not so good. It's interestingly also used to describe the kingdom of God as something that is small, hidden, and unseen, but it bubbles up and makes this beautiful, fluffy loaf. Any bread lovers in the house? Uh, My wife bakes bread sometimes, and it's amazing. Uh, so she asked us, what kind of leaven is growing in our hearts? I so appreciated this word because it really sets up our text this morning uh, as, as a follow-up to that. Uh, and then um, two weeks ago, Bill, not Tim, sorry, Bill. I called him Tim this morning. It's okay. Uh, Bill preached about restored faith to do the impossible. This is the story of Peter and Jesus. Peter walked on water. Unbelievable, reminding us to have faith to do the impossible. Um, our text this morning comes from Matthew 15, 1 to 20, uh, but I actually want to start a little bit earlier, uh, so I'm going to read that, uh, and, then, um, and then we'll jump in. Let me pray. God, I pray as we open your word that you would reveal our, this condition of our hearts, Lord, and that you would reveal your heart to us. God, I pray that this would be more than a transfer of information, but God, this would be a moment where our lives are restored. In your name we pray. Amen. So Matthew, starting at Matthew 14, verse 34. When they, that's the disciples and Jesus, had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him, And he begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father and mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips But their hearts are far from me. 
They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them. But what comes out of their mouth, this is what defiles them. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, Explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. The word of the Lord. My kids came home from vacation Bible school the other day with a song, uh, a song that got me thinking. It's pretty deep, um, and it goes kind of like this. If you know it, you might know it. Go ahead and sing along. It goes like this. I just want to be a sheep, ba, 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 ba. I just want to be a sheep, ba, ba. Sing it, Asher. You know it. I just want to be a sheep, ba, 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 ba. I just want to be a sheep. I told you it was deep. So there's a verse and it goes, I don't want to be a Pharisee. I don't want to be a Pharisee. Because they're not really fair, you see. I don't want to be a Pharisee. And then there's other verses. I don't want to be a hypocrite. Because they're not hip with it. Eh? I don't want to be a Sadducee. There's a sad, you see. It's a very, very creative song. <laughs> so this song stuck in my head for days. And I'm just like in my head and sometimes out loud singing, I just want to be a sheep. Bah, bah, bah. It's a little catchy. And so I'm singing this song. And, and then I'm like, I think I'm doing the dishes or something. And I have this thought. I don't want to be a sheep. Why am I singing this? A sheep. Who, who in their right minds wants to be a sheep, the dumb, smelly creature that eats grass. Like, what? And, it, and it just got me thinking, you know what? My whole life I've been raised, Pharisees and Sadducees are bad. They're like kind of the villains of the New Testament, right? And the sheep, are they're the good ones. Like the sheep, and they follow the good shepherd. And So my whole life I kind of have this paradigm, Pharisees bad, sheep good. And as I'm reading the text this morning, I'm realizing, you know what? Matthew's assuming that we think Pharisees are actually good. Matthew's writing to a mostly Jewish audience that are, is taught to be like a Pharisee. These are the moral people of, of the day, right? They have all the answers. These are the people that you want to be like. And so uh, as we enter into our text this morning, I want us to, to not assume that we're a bunch of cute, nice, fluffy sheep. But let's assume, you know what? The Pharisees, they actually had something to offer, and they actually are what we, we thought we needed to be like until Jesus walks on the scene, right? So, 
here's the scene. Jesus is wandering remote villages around the Sea of Galilee, ministering to crowds of people. He just miraculously fed 5,000 people, and he walked on water just as he came to a small town along the Sea of Galilee. It says, all who touched the fringe of his garment were healed. This is incredible, incredible stuff. No one, no one has walked on water before. His disciples are like, surely this is the Son of God. This doesn't happen every day. Uh, this is an incredible scene. Uh, and why I wanted to read the passage just before this, um, my wife said the other day, it, it was like the veil was thin. The veil between heaven and earth was thin, right? I mean, it's, the kingdom of God is just evident. You can't deny it. And then here come the Pharisees. And the Sadducees from Jerusalem. So these guys aren't coming from a podunk farming town like Bethlehem. They're coming from the Washington, D.C. of the Jewish religious system. These are the big deal. You know, they pull up in their SUVs or whatever. Not really. But, um, you know, why do you disciples break the tradition of the elders? Shocked and angry, they say, they don't wash their hands when they eat. Now, to us... Uh, this seems kind of like extremely contrasting. And I think Matthew actually wants us to feel the contrast between these mirac- miraculous things Jesus is doing and this claim, why don't you wash your hands, right? It seems so trivial. Um, but before we overly criticize the Pharisees, um, we, uh, we need to remember that we have the whole story, and we're 2,000 years and half a world apart culturally. Um, interestingly, uh, ceremonially, ceremonially washing hands before a meal was among the most important and common practices among Jews of that day. Uh, it was a long-held tradition set in place to help them love God to the best of their ability. Uh, one well-known and off-quoted rabbi of the second century named Yosef declared that eating with unwashed hands was as great a sin as adultery. So this was a big deal to the Jewish people of the day. Uh, But as Jesus points out, hand washing is not a biblical command of God, but a man-made rule. And even if it was written into the Jewish law, to help them draw near to God, their corrupt hearts turned it into something else that worked against the kingdom of God. So the religious leaders asked Jesus about breaking their tradition of hand-washing. Jesus uh, Jesus brilliantly flips the question back on them by exposing the heart of the issue. He uses a seemingly unrelated example from the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and 21 about honoring your father and mother. Uh, To be honest, this was a little confusing to me at first read. Maybe it was to you too. Maybe you're smarter than me. I don't know. Um, But what does honoring your father and mother have to do with hand-washing? Uh, and what does this have to do about things being devoted to God? It was confusing to me. Um, but as I studied it, it, I discovered the brilliance of Jesus' argument. Uh, so it would have been common practice among the Jews to take care of their aging parents financially. They didn't have social security and all these safety nets. Um, and, and this was a big deal. In fact, most ancient Jewish rabbis, including Josephus, would have considered caring for one's aging parents as the most important commandment in the law. Uh, the Pharisees had established another tradition that allowed people to set aside money as sacred, like a tithe or a, an offering that you would give to the temple. And that would be dedicated to God, so it couldn't be used for anything else. Well, the people would use this loophole to withhold financial support from their aging parents. 
So Jesus kind of had them pinned because even the Pharisees and Sadducees would have been like, you're right. This is a, this is a terrible injustice, and it, it shouldn't be this way. But what Jesus was doing was exposing the attitudes of their hearts, and they couldn't see it. He's exposing sin as an example for all the people gathered there to see and understand what the kingdom is like. Jesus ends his argument against the Pharisees declaring, For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching doctrines as commandments of men. Uh, this morning I want to highlight three contrasting themes in this verse. Uh, so we have the religious, the Pharisees' religious system that's built on human tradition, and we have the kingdom of God built on the word of God. This is something Matthew is giving this contrast in this text and wants us to see. More specifically, the Pharisees' religious system is focused on avoiding defilement, where the kingdom of God is focused on restoring the defiled. And uh, he is drawing a contrast between the blind, self-righteous attitudes of the Pharisees and Sadducees versus the humble, simple faith of the disciples. So let's unpack these themes. I want to start with some teaching this morning, um, the word of God versus human tradition. So Jesus says to the Pharisees, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Jesus has drawn a clear line between human tradition and the word of God. So the word tradition there is paradosis. These are teachings handed over from generation to generation. So in this context, Jesus is referring to a compilation of Jewish laws and writings called the Talmud. Say Talmud. Talmud. This was a collection of writings of thousands of rabbis passed down from generation to generation. The Jews also followed the Torah, which is the five books of the Bible. But laws about hand-washing were not found in the Torah, just in the Talmud. Uh, Paradosis, these traditions, they're not authoritative, but they are man-made. And the Jews actually would have agreed the traditions of the Talmud were vitally important to uh, the culture of the day, but they weren't considered the inspired word of God as the Torah would have been. Uh, tradition deeply impacts the culture of a society. I was thinking of a modern example today. Uh, so a simple example, the 4th of July. Okay, with the 4th of July, this is a tradition we all partake in. One way or another. It's unavoidable. Uh, Businesses close. We have work off, maybe. Uh, Popular songs have been written about this. We purchase things just because they're red, white, and blue, like soda cans. Everything everything in our culture just starts to shift and change around this holiday, right? And there's other holidays, too. We could think of a million examples of traditions um, here. Uh, We blow up. I just read, we, we spent, as Americans, guess how much we spent on fireworks last year? Two billion dollars. Yeah, unbelievable. I'm like, wow, okay, we are investing in this tradition (laughs) big time. Um, So traditions, they shape our culture, but they also reveal the underlying uh, values of our culture. So what commonly held value does the 4th of July reveal in us as Americans? We value freedom. Right? This is what we're celebrating. It's, we value freedom. Uh, what does is, what is hand-washing reveal in ancient Near East? Holiness. Holiness. They, were, they didn't want to be defiled. The reason they're not washing their hands, they don't want to be defiled so they can go to the temple and give their sacrifices and do all this stuff so that they can be close to God who is holy. 
So tradition, uh, it both shapes our culture and reveals what we value as a culture or as people. And they're also fluid, so they can change over time. Let's talk about the Word of God. The Bible uses four ways to understand the phrase, the Word of God. I want to unpack these quickly because uh, it just makes this verse, I think, a lot clearer this morning. So there's the prophetic, the written, the embodied, and the proclaimed Word of God. These are all ways that the Bible uses this phrase, Word, or Word of God. In the Old Testament, it's Deber, and in the New Testament, it's Logos. Logos, sorry. Um, So the prophetic... Before the Bible was ever written, it was passed orally. So before it was written, it wasn't always written down. It's an interesting thought. So it was passed orally. Uh, And the the Hebrew word here is deber. When the word of God was spoken, it was spoken through a prophet. And so we see this phrase all the time in the Old Testament, right? The word of the Lord came to whoever, Moses, Daniel, Ezekiel, right? And, And the word of the Lord came to, or they say, thus saith the Lord, said the prophet. And then they would speak. And that was considered the word of God. It was authoritative and inspired by God. So when they spoke, uh, stuff happened. Uh, it was effective. And so a true prophet was one that what they said happened. And it happened 100% of the time. That was an important thing about prophecy. So over time, the word of, the God, the word of God was recorded. So these prophetic words, these stories were written down first into the Torah, first five books of the Bible. And then Christians eventually included Psalms, Proverbs, writings, prophets, and eventually the New Testament. Still authoritative, still inspired by God. So as Christians, we believe that the Bible is more than a collection of stories, right? It's more than just history. It's more than a book of rules. It is the authoritative and inspired word of God. This makes it a foundation for truth and reality. So the written word of God, just like the prophetic word of God, still transcends cultural values and preferences. The Bible is by far the most translated and widely distributed book in the world. Uh, It isn't bound to any particular culture or language, uh, but all people everywhere at all time, regardless of age, ethnicity, gender, or anything, the word of God has spoken And just like the prophetic word, the written word is effective. The author of Hebrew writes, The word of the Lord is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We heard this morning already, we are a people who know the word of God has the power to change our lives. And I think we could spend a whole morning sharing testimonies of how the word Actually, that'd be really encouraging. We're not going to, but that'd be amazing. We could hear how, how this word has shaped us. In the first century, the New Testament writers began to describe Jesus Christ as the embodied word of God. And this is significant. John writes in John 1, 1, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word he uses here for word is Logos. So the Logos was with God and was God. And in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So we have Jesus Christ embodying the word of God. So his words are authoritative. 
They're inspired. They are, they are God's words. Uh, his words uh, are effective. So when he tells a demon to leave, the demon leaves. When he tells somebody to be healed, they're healed, right? His word is effective and it is powerful and it's authoritative. Uh, it also transcends cultural values. So we see in our text today, today, Jesus did this all the time. His word always trumped the tradition or whatever value didn't line up with the kingdom. And then finally, the proclaimed word. So after Pentecost, the church is born and begins to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And New Testament writers began to speak of proclaiming the gospel as proclaiming the logos, the word of God. And so uh, Paul writes this to the church in Thessalonica. It's beautiful. And we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word, the logos of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, the logos of God. It's the same phrase used to describe the embodied word, the proclaimed, the written word, and the prophetic word. The gospel is authoritative, it is effective, and it transcends cultural values and preferences. So with this understanding, how are we doing today? How do we view the word today? I did a little research, uh, a poll conducted in 2022, so very recently by the American Bible Society, revealed that a record low 20% of Americans now say the Bible is the literal word of God. That's down 24% from the last time the question was asked in 2017. So a lot changed recently. And it's half of what it was in 1980 to 1984, which was some good years. That's when I was born. <laughs> Thank you, Mom. Thank you, Thank you Catherine, <laughs> for raising me. When, you know, I'm just kidding. Um, so this, uh, yeah, uh, pretty wild. Um, and then meanwhile, a new high of 29% say the Bible is nothing more than a collection of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts recorded by man. So this actually marks the first time uh, in history that Americans have viewed the Bible as not divinely inspired word of God. That more people see it as not inspired than see it as inspired. Uh, the same poll asked Americans to respond to the statement, when Jesus lived on earth, or sorry, when he lived on earth, Jesus Christ was human and committed sins like other people. About 35% of Americans said this is true. Almost 20% of scripture-engaged people said this was true. These are people that are reading the Bibles on a semi-regular basis, said Jesus sinned. Uh, it's shocking. Uh, so nearly one in four Gen Z adults believe Jesus sinned. If we believe that Jesus sinned, you know, what happened at the cross? You lose the gospel. You lose everything. In a lot of ways, we have reduced Jesus to a good guy who had a big impact on the world, but no power to rescue or save. We've made void the word of God. Another recent poll revealed that about half of millennials, where's my millennials here? I mean, I'm, I'm the front end of a millennial. Um, half of millennial Christians in the U.S. think that evangelism is wrong. Uh, so for us millennials, do we think that? Do we live that way? 
This is, a, this is a half of our generation thinks that evangelism, telling somebody else about Jesus is actually wrong. So we have some problems. Uh, a growing number of Christians in our nation are making void the word of God for the sake of human tradition. Our faith and practice as followers of Jesus is being deeply formed by something other than the prophetic, written, embodied, and proclaimed word of God. So let's bring this a little closer to home. Remember, remember the Levin analogy that Jalisa introduced us to that describes the teaching of the Pharisees. It's hidden. You don't see it in the dough, but it grows up inside of us and it creates a whole thing that reveals the underlying yeast or the underlying values within, within it. I think this morning, um, we all, I know we all have hidden values and, and traditions that are man-made, that we have grown up with, that we're maybe even totally blind to, we've maybe even never thought about. But I want to just actually create some space this morning to consider. Um, I've had several weeks to prepare for this, and I've just been spending some time meditating on this, and I came up with a list of phrases of things that I felt like either I personally have have bought into that that don't line up with the kingdom of God or things that I just observe in our church today. So I want to read these and as I'm reading, I want to just invite us to to like listen to the Holy Spirit. Is does something like stand out? Does it cause conviction? Does it make me feel angry? Does it make me feel offended? Does it make me feel sad? Um, does it trigger something in me? So here we go. It's easier for me to point out sin in others than in myself. It's especially easy to point out sin in those in leadership over me, whether at work, at church, at home, with my spouse, with my parents, or the leaders of our nation. This is judgmentalism. Instead of coming to church with the expectation to serve or be used by God, I usually come to church to receive something. And if I don't get what I want or need out of the service, I feel disappointed. This is consumerism. I love to read my Bible and pray in private, but I rarely share what God is teaching me with others. This reflects individualism. When I pray for others, share my faith, or serve in church in some way, it's hard for me not to feel like I'm better than other Christians. This is superiority. I love giving to those in need, but I don't want them to live next door to me. Elitism. I'd rather provide for my own needs rather than depend on God to provide. This is self-sufficiency. I spend more time talking with my friends about what we're against than what we're for. We talk about issues rather than connecting with people affected by them. We may talk about critical race theory rather than talking with people of color in our city experiencing racism. Maybe we talk about the LGBTQ plus agenda more than we sit and talk with people experiencing same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria. I call myself a Christian, but my community is based more on mutual hate than on mutual love. This is tribalism, self-preservation. 
I got one more. I'm going to read Acts 2, 42 to 47, which describes how the early church experienced community. And then I'm going to read a paraphrase written by a pastor in New York uh, who describes church practices and community today. So about 2,000 years ago, Luke said this of the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And Pastor John Tyson said in a paraphrase of this describing the church today, they studied the apostles' teaching when they had time. They went to fellowship when they could fit it in. They prayed when they needed something and got coffee together every now and then. They were content without and had low expectations for signs and wonders in their midst. They sometimes talked about generosity, but kept all their possessions for themselves. Two out of five Sundays they came for corporate gatherings. They didn't invite people into their homes and rarely revealed their hearts. They were largely irrelevant to all the people, and occasionally someone randomly was saved. This is highlighting the difference between a community formed by a commitment-based culture and our current preference-based culture. So as I read this list, Gold Avenue Church, does this describe any of us? I think that's a question the Lord is asking us this morning. I do want to say God never exposes sin to condemn us, right? He exposes sin to set us free, to restore us, and to use us as restorers in the world. I love this about Jesus. He always leaves the door open for us to turn and to follow him. After Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees, he turns to the crowd gathered there, which includes his disciples and likely the Pharisees and Sadducees he just drilled. He makes a profound statement that gets to the heart of what's going on in this passage. Hear and understand, he says, it is not what goes, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Jesus is turning this into a teaching moment for all who will hear and understand. He's revealing the nature of his kingdom. So here we have this contrast. The Pharisees are deeply concerned about being defiled by touching food that was ceremonially unclean. They had all kinds of rules in place to avoid being defiled. Don't touch lepers. Don't touch dead things. Don't touch sick people. And what does Jesus do? He touches lepers. He eats with sinners with unwashed hands. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. Lives are healed. Lives are restored. This is the kingdom. This is the leaven of the kingdom of God. It runs contrary to our sin nature, contrary to the world. And there's an open door for us, even this morning, to step into his kingdom right now. It doesn't take experience or a master's degree. Just a simple yes will do. And I love how Matthew humorously highlights this in our text. Jesus turns to the crowd and says, hear and understand. So we have these highly educated teachers of the law. They are offended. They are offended at Jesus. They were able 
They understood what Jesus said, but they, weren't, they didn't want to hear about it. Jesus said, hear and understand. They, they got it. They wouldn't have been offended if they didn't get it. And then you have his disciples. They heard what he said. They didn't get it. <laughs> and, and Jesus is like, yo, Peter. Honestly? Like, you still, you still don't get it. Really? Okay. But then he breaks it. Out of love, he breaks it down. And, and he says, okay, when you eat food, this is like how I talk to my three-year-olds. When you eat food, it goes into your tum-tum, goes, and then you poop it into the potty. And that's actually kind of how that text would have read. It's expelled into the latrine. That's how it would have, would have read. So it's like, and then your poop goes in the potty. Okay, Peter. Um, but I just love how Jesus meets his disciples where they're at. And there's this contrast here in the text. We have these highly educated, you know, Pharisees and Sadducees, um, by all human standards, they're, the, they're, they're, they're in the right. And then you have these sheep-like, sort of pathetic, kind of dumb disciples who their hearts are in it, man. They're like, I, I, this, I don't know what this guy's got, but I am all in. And they might not get it all the time, but they're all in. And I think that's what Matthew's highlighting, what Jesus is calling us into. Where's your heart? Are you resisting me or are you all in? So here we are. Jesus is calling us to root out the influence of human tradition, to follow him at his word and join his work of restoration on the earth. Uh, I want to share a, a quick story, a beautiful story of a couple friends of mine that did just this. So, uh, Cherie and Bobby. Cherie is uh, somebody I met about 12 years ago. Uh, she was a single mom of three kids, unemployed, addicted to drugs, and living with her boyfriend at his mom's house. Kind of easy to judge a person that like is kind of at rock bottom, but has a lot of also sin in their lives. And yet, we had this coffee shop called the Pavilion. Uh, it was on Bridge Street in Marion, and it was just a safe place where anybody could show up. So she walks into the pavilion um, in this state, and uh, and we had a volunteer at the time named uh, named Bobby, and uh, Bobby was like in kind of like your typical older Dutch grandma. Um, we probably a lot of us maybe have one or have met one. <laughs> um, it's West Michigan, so uh, you know. Um, came from a very different background than what Cherie did. And yet she dedicated time once a week to come in and just sit at the pavilion. So um, Bobby invited Cherie to uh, sit with her so she could teach her how to crochet. Um, Cherie had just broken her back. And so she was in a lot of pain. She couldn't work. And so she didn't really have a lot of other options. She said, sure, I'll learn to crochet. And so for week after week after week after week after week, she sat with Bobby and just Bobby just loved her. She just listened to her. Um, she didn't even say that much. They would just crochet and just listen to Cherie share and share and share. And she just shared. She embodied this love of Jesus to Cherie. Uh, a beautiful, beautiful scenario. I just heard Cherie recently retell this story, um, and she gave me permission to share this morning. Um, she loves to tell her story, and I do too. Um, she told me she told me and, and told the, the group that was listening, that was 
Bobby sitting down and listening to her and crocheting her was the point where her life started to shift. That was the catalyst. Like a broken back, stuck in a really hard place, but encountering this old Dutch grandma who just loved her where she was at was the turning point of her life. So I just love, I see this, this, uh, this woman, Bobby, just loving uh, Cherie with the love of Jesus with no judgment. And then uh, Cherie, uh, she is now, so 12 years later, she is now uh, full-time, works at Mel Trotter Ministries, helping families avoid homelessness. Um, it's amazing how God has brought restoration and healing into her life. Um, and now she is giving back as a restorer. Um, in the same, I mean, she showed up at our, our door homeless 12 years ago, and now she's helping families avoid homelessness. Beautiful, beautiful story. Um, I love how God is doing this. Interestingly, we prayed for her back to be healed a bunch of times, and God didn't heal it, right? But look at what he did over 12 years in the midst of that. Maybe God will heal her back still. I don't know. But, um, but man, our God is a God of restoration and healing, even if it doesn't look like what we want it to look, right? Um, he uses that for his kingdom, for his glory. Um, cool. I'm going to wrap up. Worship team, come on up. I want to close with this. How is Jesus calling us to respond? So I have some words that start with the letter R. This message is brought to you by the letter R. So ask God to reveal the leaven in our hearts that isn't in line with God's word. And then repent. Repent just means turn around, go the other direction. So God, reveal the leaven in our hearts. God, I repent of this and then root out the pharisee-like attitudes of our hearts those things that have shaped us that aren't of the kingdom these rules these traditions these value systems that have formed who we are that are against the ways of jesus we root those out and we replace them with the word of god and then we follow jesus his example to be a restorer of what is broken around us. So God, if you're revealing to me complacency in my faith or my judgmental attitude of a group of people, if you're revealing how self-focused and individualistic my faith is, then I repent. I say I'm sorry. God, forgive my complacency. Forgive my judgmental attitude. Forgive me for being okay with self-centered, individualistic faith. And I root it out. Lord, I root out complacency in my heart and I replace it with devotion. God, I root out judgmentalism and I replace it with compassion. I root out self-centeredness and I replace it with the desire to serve in community, whatever it is. And then, Lord, we commit to being restored in this area. If you're complacent in meditating on scripture, commit yourself to five minutes a day. If you've been judgmental toward a person or a group of people, commit to listen and learn from their perspective. If your faith is more about you than others, commit to serve. We just give you this space, even right now, Lord, this morning, reveal in our hearts, Lord, ways that we have allowed our safe selves to be shaped and formed by something other than you.
I just sense that some of us may have felt convicted to know God's word better as we contrast his word from tradition. And I want to encourage us to all grow in our understanding of the word of God so we can better discern what this leaven of the kingdom is and what it isn't. So we have the written word, the prophetic word, the embodied word, and the proclaimed word. Maybe God is calling you to join a Bible study or, or a base camp this fall. You can talk to Brittany or Pastor Jalisa about that. Just a really practical way to grow in your understanding of the written word of God. Maybe God is calling you to grow more in the prophetic word. We, have, we actually have a class that meets here on Wednesday nights that helps you explore what is the gift of prophecy. And what does that look like today? The embodied word. In just a minute, we're going to move into a song. Worthy, Jesus, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Embody, you can, you can move into the, celebrating the embodied word by meditating on the work of Jesus on the cross and through worship. Maybe God is calling you to grow in your proclaimed word of God. We have a prayer walking team that, that goes out on Thursday nights. You've got people in your own life that are desperate to hear the good news of Jesus. Ask God to highlight somebody in your life that you can share the good news with. So before we jump into this song, um, I want to give us just a couple moments to, to reflect. Um, I said a lot, and just want to give us a few moments to reflect. So pray with me. God, would you, again, would you reveal any ways in our hearts and our lives, God, that maybe it's, a, maybe it's a practical action step to take. Maybe it's something deeper that you're digging up, Lord, that you want to you heal, you want to restore. Whatever that is, God, I pray that you would bring that to the surface so now in our minds, Lord. And as we move into this time of worship, remind us, God, that you are a good God a loving God. That your word is powerful and effective. That you, Jesus, are worthy of it all as we sang this morning. Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness. Thank you for calling us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. God, thank you for showing us day by day by day, more of who you are, what you are like, and what your kingdom is like. Keep us growing in the ways of Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.